I hear Jerusalem bells are ringing, Roman cavalry choirs are singing. Be my mirror, my sword and shield, missionaries on a foreign field. For some reason I can't explain, I know St. Peter won't call my name, never an honest word. And that was when I ruled the world. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I can see this morning. It's daylight savings time, just begun. So now I have more light. I can come out at my normal time. Hey guys, this is a Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. I am a church anthropologist, activist, contemplative, and carpenter. <laughs> That's my new moniker or whatever slogan identifier. I'll explain that in the podcast following the end of the series and we are coming to the end this is i believe this is the second to last i think we're going to wrap up next week so man we've gone through the centuries we've been going through history like a lightning bolt like luther's lightning bolt right i was i was um reading about luther a little more because you know there's some things i I wasn't sure uh, some details about his life and so i do have some corrections to make from some previous podcasts one of them was that song i mentioned by Coldplay. And if you read all the lyrics, it's called Viva La Vida. That's actually the name of the album it comes from, too. It's a couple of years back, uh, an album they released. But I think that album is about the Pope, right? It's a, you know, be my mirror, my sword and shield, missionaries on a foreign field. You know, and, he, and he's, it's like from the perspective of the Pope, you know, when I ruled the world, but never an honest word, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about orthodoxy and, and the patristic period and the high Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages and now the Protestant Reformation. And we're just, we're just digging through and, and, you know, sorting through and making our way through history, the history of the church and, and in conjunction with the Middle Ages and Western civilization and all oh, this has been so fun. But it's been a broad overview, of course. So like we've come up to the Protestant Reformation in the 15th century and we've come into the 16th century, which was the, the um, Swiss Reformation. So we're going to kind of inhabit a little bit of that history and we're going to move into the 16th and 17th century. Um, moving the church forward from the kind of still the pre-modern era, kind of getting starting to get into the modern era. But this is mostly pre-modern still. And so we're going to today, today's episode, uh, of course, this series is called On Being Church. This is episode 13. And today's episode is secular. (laughs) I almost forgot. It's called secular. Right. So this is what's going on. In in the mood of the times, the culture, the the you know the fifteenth sixteenth um, century is the Renaissance, and this is just a time where there's just scientific and artistic flourishing. But there's a the, you know it's in conjunction with the Protestant Reformation. Um, the Renaissance kind of started in Italy, and and really in Italy it was going on. Some people think as early as the twelfth or thirteenth century. It was kind of the pre-Renaissance, you could say. You know, the Renaissance can be seen as kind of a longer period or shorter, depending on how you view it. But, like, history is messy, and it's not black and white. And so, generally, historians think Renaissance is 15th, 16th century. And then the Enlightenment is 17th and 18th. Um, and, there, you know, one leads to the other. And, of course, the Protestant Reformation. Like, really, the catalyst, I think, is that these monolithic structures of authority, the church and state, 
you know, the, the monarchies and the Pope, their hold over culture and society is starting to slip. And they have really been a totalitarian kind of influence authoritatively. Right? You know, you didn't do anything. I mean, the, both of these institutions of government and religion had the power to kill you if you stepped out of line, and they did. It was just a very tightly controlled kind of society. But now you see that opening up. And Luther is one of the first big figures here where he stands up against the Catholic Church and survives. And then, man, he just sparks Reformation left and right. And Ulrich Zwingli in, Swi- in Switzerland. And, like, now we see Ul- from Ulrich Zwingli, of course, the Anabaptists have come. And, like, there's all kinds of reform going now, going on in the church and the Reformation is happening, but it just continues to build, right? The Protestant Reformation, but it kind of, it kind of, you know, filters out, and it it continues to, to, in the spirit of Reformation, it continues to kind of fracture. You could say, and what I mean is, it continues to like. This is where, um, so from Luther. There's this, like Luther was kind of the catalyst, right? And then there's this first generation of reformers with Ulrich. And let me jump to my notes because I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Because um, I have these names written down. There's like kind of these big um, figures in the first generation of reformers. Let me back up here. Okay, so the first generation of, these are called reformed theologians, right? It's Ulrich Zwingli. 1484 to 1531, Martin Bucher, Wolfgang Capito, John Ossolampadius, Guillaume Ferrell. Like these are all the kind of the first generation reformers following Luther, right? They're kind of on the heels of Luther. Um, you know, they're at the same time as Luther, right? And I talked about it. they all get together and Luther, they all can't really get along. But so that's the first generation. Second generation then, and that's, right, that's um, late 15th century to mid or early 16th century and then the second generation is early to mid 16th century and you have people like John Calvin Henrik Bullinger Wolfgang Michaelus Peter Martyr Vermilion Andreas Hyperius you know and so these guys like second generation reformers they begin to really form theology and this is called reform theology and this is where we get lutheranism we get calvinism you know we get baptists the anabaptists of course coming out um and there's this building kind of literature and liturgy and tradition right that's now becoming it's Protestant, right? It just that Protestant just means to protest, but it's reformed, right? It's it's captured or encapsulated by a spirit of reform, of wanting to reform the church. You know, and I mean it's no wonder that the Protestant Reformation, it's five hundred years old. It has a spirit of reform. It's a constantly like, man, we're you know, are we still are we really the church Jesus wants? And so but there's also this spirit of, well, are you getting it right? You know, Luther was challenging the Catholic Church and, and necessarily so, but you have to understand the Protestant Reformation was founded in a spirit of questioning. And I was reading about Luther, like he was he was really No, I apologize. I'm I'm conflating stories. Uh, who was it? I'm thinking about... Okay, I can't remember. 
Luther was well-educated. I did say I had some corrections. So Luther was not a pastor of a church in Germany. He was a professor at the University of Wittenberg, and he was actually the chair of theology, right, at the time that he wrote the... Which makes more sense, actually, because what he was writing as a professor, as a theologian to theologians, and that's not really debated. He wasn't trying to directly address the Pope or the church as a, at large. He was trying to have a discussion as a theologian among theologians. So that was one correction. The other was that I kept saying for the last 16,000 years of the church, and it's 1,600 years, I <laughs> that last podcast. And of course, then I had mentioned the Coldplay song, and I couldn't remember it, and that's Viva La Vida. So, hey, I do get things wrong sometimes, but I try to, I, I usually try to fact check myself, but you can too. Don't always get every every little detail right, but so there you go. There's some corrections, but so I mean, like today's topic is secular, right? And so I want to what I really want to emphasize is, as I've already discussed, like there's a backlash against this long period of the Middle Ages and the totalitarian grip that the church and state held over society, and that, like they colluded together, right? And so there's this backlash going on. This is what the Renaissance is. This is what the Renaissance and Reformation are. But there's two kind of key things that I think happen during these this, the Renaissance and Enlightenment, the pre-modern, and that's humanism and fundamentalism, okay? So I titled this secular because this is what's happening for the first time in the history of Western civilization, really. And you could probably even say what history of the world, what you have developing is the idea of a secular society. Separation of church and state. We talked about that last time. Where, you know, the Anabaptists in their um, Schlethium Confession, they, for the first time they're like, hey, wait a minute, maybe the church shouldn't be in bed with the state. Like these ideas are effervescing, right? And so democracies, when democracies are finally formed, much later, you know, I would say, hmm, I don't have my dates there, but, you know, it's really more a part of the, of the Enlightenment period when monarchies are being challenged and really uh, dismantled. Finally, democracy is being birthed. But democracy is birthed out of this idea of separating church and state. But we already see that idea coming forth in the 15th century with the Anabaptists in the Schlethium Confession. But it doesn't quite take root politically yet. But it's being birthed, right? All this whole long season, this pre-modern, this move out of the Middle Ages into modern is people going, you know what? This Middle Ages thing, this, you know, this totalitarian control by the church and state, this just, you know, they're dissatisfied, right? There's a yearning for something different. All right, the church and state has just been, was like, you know, kill and conquer in the name of Christ. Both the church and state colluded together in this spirit of, well, yeah, we're Christian and we're going to establish Christian nations and we're a Christian kingdom, the Holy Roman Empire, you know, we're going to go take Jerusalem. And it's all like, yeah, we're, all, we're a Christian, it's Christendom, right? We're a Christian nation. And what does a Christian nation do? They pick up the sword and they kill and conquer for Christ. And so the, the Protestant Reformation, part of it is some people are going, hmm, is that really? Is that really Jesus? Is this really Christianity? Is Christendom and Christianity really the same thing? You know, is this, is this really what Christianity is supposed to be? And so Reformed theology is constantly kind of pushing the bounds against the orthodoxy that has been, the orthodoxy of the Catholic Church. I would say it's, it's interesting to me. There's a great urge and impetus in Reformed theology in the Protestant Reformation, to just not be the Catholic Church, right? I belong to a church 
that was very dynamic inner city church and did a lot of good. But one of its main focuses was we're not going to be like every other church. It was called Church for Non-Church People. But some of their identity was like, we're not going to, any, however the traditional church does it, we won't. And that was good in some ways, but in other ways, they were unwilling to do some necessary things that traditional churches do that are healthy, right? Sometimes a reaction against something isn't always good um, in every way, right? We don't, sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And like part of my spiritual journey has been rediscovering my Christian roots. And this is what we're talking about. Like, And a, a lot of what I've talked about is how the church has changed throughout the centuries, right? And how things have come in and been adopted that haven't necessarily been good. But there are still good things there. One of those good things is contemplation. I've discovered contemplation. I've discovered, discovered things about the Catholic Church that were good. There were parts, there were things, Things, thoughts, teachers, thinkers, you know, theologies, truths that are good there. Like anything, we try to sift through and sort out the good and the bad. We don't throw everything out. Um, but the Protestant Reformation was like, no, we're just, we're not going to be Catholic, that's for sure. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> um, but some things from that tradition are also good. But man, as I was saying... Um, you have these two gener- generations of reformers, right? Um, from o- Ulrich Zwingli was really the big, you know, 16th century. John Calvin is really the big 17th century. I'm sorry, he's he's mid to late 16th century. And then what you know what's going on in the 17th century is this, the the discovery of the Americas. That's a big thing too. So. Um, let me get into, <laughs> there's a lot I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to think about what direction to go. Like, so the main focus though is, is right now is, is humanism. And, and even these reformers like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin were very influenced by humanism. And so let's, let's actually get into a definition of humanism. That sounds like a good idea. Like the basic idea of humanism is centering humanity in culture instead of God. Like During the Middle Ages, there was this idea called divine providence or a providential view of history. Like God is the mover and shaker of the world. You know, right, this is Christendom. This is Christianity in charge of nation states. It's like, hey, God orders the world and our goal is to, you know, figure out that order and to align with it, right? And of course, what we've talked about is how... You know, the church adopted the sword and it really was following the wrong kingdom. But its desire at least was to initiate, enact, and advance the kingdom of God. It just did it with a sword, right? It adopted a beast. It, you know, it, it really got on the wrong vehicle for advancing the kingdom and it, started, it got in bed with the wrong kingdom. But this was its goal. A providential view of history was, hey, God is the ultimate power in the universe. And he shapes history and he guides history and it's all about God. Well, humanism was like the opposite. It was like, you know, maybe God created the world. Maybe he didn't. We're not going to say God's not there, but it's really about us. It's a, it's a human-centered uh, approach towards culture and the world, right? And so what's it, I thought it was very interesting, you know, 
I used I thought humanism began with the Renaissance. It really became central in culture with the Renaissance. But humanism actually goes all the way back to pre um, pre Greek culture. Um, well, it actually mainly Greek culture, but I, I'm trying to think of pre Roman or you know pre modern pre common era. There's BC and there's BCE before common era and CE pre pre common era or before common era was where really humanism got its start in Greek thinking. Greek philosophers were the first to really try to start to kind of step back from um, mythology and this idea of the gods as central and start to try to understand things kind of more rationally. This is why the uh, Enlightenment is also called the Age of Reason. But remember, I've already talked about how Greek philosophy influenced uh, Augustine of Hippo towards more a more rational approach. There was the faith reason synthesis. Reason, human reason, and human um, the human person or individual or humanity is central to humanism. That's why it's called humanism, right? And reason is central to that. Like, what can we understand about the world and how the world works? And it begins to be like, it's not so mysterious. Like, God set things up and we don't always understand it, but but we just try to do what God says. Humanism is like, well, you know what? We can understand some things. There's a lot, actually a lot we can understand. And so, like, there were some. There was a lot of good things. And when I talked about Ulrich Zwingli and these reformers being influenced by humanism, today uh, we might think, like, well, humanism's bad. Because it says God's not at the center. Well, to these guys, that wasn't necessarily so. It was like, hey, yeah, there's still God, but there's also God's given us some things, and we can understand things, and we can peer. Maybe we can peer more, more clearly into the way the world works. And you have during this time the rise of agnosticism and deism. You know, there wasn't this denial that God was there, but it was like a. It was a stepping back from this idea that God was so involved. And it was going, well, you know, God is God involved? Maybe, maybe not. But, like, there's also some things we can do. It was the rise of this impetus of humanity going, hey, you know what? We can do some things, too. And we can know some things, too. And, and it was, of course, there was a lot of good scientific discovery, advancements, culturally, civically, socially. I mean, where we are today is all a result of people of the of renaissance humanism people going you know you know what we're smarter than we think and we can do a lot more than we think you know um it's not just god says and god wills and that's it and i would say you know god is a part of innovation and thriving and there's been a lot of advancements that have caused thriving and in a lot of ways the totalitarian approach of the catholic church in the middle ages was did not cause thriving right it's killing people but um so that's a brief understanding of humanism and like like i said it got started in greek philosophy and although it kind of takes center stage with starting with the renaissance into the enlightenment the 15th 16th 17th 18th century the seeds of humanism were planted into the church already right we've talked about this Hey, we can think, we, we can come up with ideas, we can come up with a universal orthodoxy, sound familiar? We can blend human reason with God-given revelation. This is all going on the 3rd and 4th century and through the patristic period, the 700 years of the patristic period. Like, 
I think it's kind of funny because I talk with atheists and people who aren't Christian. And they're like, yeah, isn't it great that all of a sudden we have this ability to be smart and reason things out? And like, It's like we just discovered humanism in the, in the 16th century and it started to take root in the 18th century. No, no, that's not true. It's been, it goes all the way back to Greek culture. Protagoras. Pro, Protagoras was a philosopher, a pre-Socratic philosopher that lived in 44 BCE. You know, for 500 years before Jesus, this was happening. Um, Socrates was another. Aristotle was another. These were Greek philosophers, and they they taught that rationalism and and you know could work, and their uh, system of ethics based on human nature. Like, this was humanism. It's not necessarily bad. It's just like, hey, we can know some stuff and we can kind of be more intellectually oriented. It's not all superstition. And, like, we can't quite fathom what we could call pre-rational society. I think that's an unfair term. But looking back at the Middle Ages, it does seem quite superstitious, mythical, we could use the word ignorant. I think, again, that's unfair. The Enlightenment thinkers called the Middle Ages the Dark Ages because they thought it was ignorant. Everybody was just running around thinking demons were chasing them, trying to get out of purgatory, trying to stay out of purgatory, you know, trying to be on God's good side. And the church was killing people if they didn't think right. And, it's, you know, the Enlightenment thinkers were looking at the Middle Ages going, did someone, was there not a rational person during this period going, hey, Let's stop killing people over truth and let's just realize that maybe there's some natural phenomenon going on. It's not all demons and God, you know, (laughs) but as we know, there were rational thinkers all the way back. This is where Western culture gets its start is in Greek culture. 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, there were Greek philosophers, there was humanism, but it kind of basically gets ingested into Western culture, into church. And so you have this kind of uh, maybe a dampening. It kind of gets goes dormant. It gets ingested into what it gets focused into orthodoxy, right? Right thinking. It kind of gets focused on theology. It doesn't get focused through science and the arts as much during the Middle Ages. And so it's still there, but it's being more focused on you know, the theologians of the time, like Luther, or, you know, Luther was, was a theologian of his time, but there were theologians throughout the Middle Ages. They were thinkers. They were people. It's just that scientifically, what I talked about Galileo, right? He was killed for heliocentricity. You weren't really allowed to advance a lot of scientific ideas if they weren't, if they were seen as contradictory to the Bible. And so you had the Bible in the Middle Ages becoming this totalitarian instrument of control. And you could, if you were a scientist, you better be careful. You better make sure you align with orthodoxy, right? Because orthodoxy is supreme. If you're you're a heretic, it doesn't matter if you're a theologian or a scientist or an artist. If you paint something, think something, write something, scientific, artistically, theologically, and it's not in line with universal orthodoxy, you'll die. So you can see how the ideas of the times during the Middle Ages were a little bit um, 
what's the word dampened or just constrained because there was this looming sword over your head all the time like the sword of oh what is that guys uh it's on the tip of my tongue there's this story about a king who hangs a sword over his, his throne sort sort of diamete diam it's a greek mythology i can't believe i can't remember but diocletian or uh, anyway he hangs the sword over his head by a string to remind himself that the fragility of his power but like that's the middle ages there was a sword hanging over everybody's head if you were a scientist an artist you better make sure you were sanctioned by the church and often there were the artists were just they were they had patrons usually it was the church or private citizens but basically you couldn't piss off the catholic church or the monarchy or you were dead that's a big sword hanging over people's heads and now that sword is being dismantled in the time of the renaissance the reformation the renaissance and then the enlightenment the pre-modern era this is what's going on this is the time of luther ulrich zwingli john calvin they have this freedom to begin to develop reform theology but like so you've got humanism going on that's more secular you have this secular society being created this whole for the first time this idea of separation of church and state like maybe the church shouldn't be in bed with the state and vice versa like we need to protect each from each other we don't want we don't want the state killing christians right like the idea that the church wielded the sword well, who did it wield the sword against? In the Middle Ages, there wasn't non-church. There wasn't non-Christian. So some Christians were wielding the sword, but some Christians were on the other end of that sword. And so the separation of church and state was like, some Christians are using the state to kill other Christians, and we need to protect the state from Christians who want to use it to control, and we need to protect Christians from the state that could kill them because other Christians want to use the state to kill other Christians, right? This is the idea. Like, let's separate it for the sake of both, for the benefit of both. It wasn't just for the protection of the state. It wasn't just for the protection of the church. It was for the protection of both. Maybe we should separate them. Well, that's what secular society is. In essence, it's this idea that the church is relegated to a role in society. It's no longer in control of society. And now you have a society that's has more freedom. The church can no longer kill you if you don't think like they like, right? And man, I, overall, I would say that's good, right? So the creation of secular society brought a lot of freedom. And look at the results. I'm holding a cell phone right now. It is using an app that's linked through a satellite in the air. I can't even see. There's a piece of metal, a hunk of metal that's orbiting the earth <laughs> like right this is this is great right i'm gonna download this a little later right i mean the technological advances in medicine and science so i can drive a car i just bought a motorcycle right i mean science is pretty darn good when it has the freedom to just explore and not have the church going well does that contradict the bible and i don't know if god likes that Right? I mean, it's like, I think God likes technological advancement. I think God likes it when we come up with medicines that, you know, solve uh, problems and rid the world of disease. That's not anti-God, right? 
I think it's pretty great that we figured out this, that the Earth revolves around the sun, even though Galileo was killed because of it. <laughs> Poor guy. He's like, I'm just a scientist. I'm just trying to follow the facts. And the church is like, well, we don't like your facts. The Bible says you're dead. <laughs> the Bible says the sun rises. You're saying it doesn't. Well, guess what? We have the sword. You're dead. <laughs> you know, it's like, so secular society in general, I think is good. But it leaves the door open. For what? It leaves the door open for people not to be Christian. Ooh. It leaves the door open for a state not to be Christian. It actually creates this paradigm where if a country is going to be Christian, it should be so because the people are Christian, not because the state is Christian. Right? And that's exactly what you see once the, that door is open and people are like, hey, we're not going to be killed if we're not Christian or if we're a different kind of Christian. And a scientist is like, hey, I can come up with things that contradict orthodoxy and I won't be killed. And artists are like, hey, I can paint whatever the heck I feel like. This is great. I may be poor and on the street trying to sell my art, hawk my wares, but I, I can create whatever I want if the church doesn't like it. Mm. See ya, sucker. I, I don't care. You can't kill me anymore because of my art. Because you don't like my art. <laughs> right? It's like, this is great. But it opens the door for people to, oh my gosh, to choose to be Christian. And what if they don't? <laughs> right? So you have this time of thriving, but it comes as a result of people having the freedom Freedom from the oppression of universal orthodoxy in a church that will enforce it by pain of death. <laughs> right? Uh, but it's still in flux, right? And so, unfortunately, you still have, like during the, Ren the Renaissance, especially period, the 5th, 15th, 16th century, and even into the Enlightenment period, you still have Protestant nations. They're still monarchies, right? You still have Protestant. They're, they're Protestant. Now you have the Anglican Church. You have Lutheran Church. You have, uh, Cal I don't know if Calvinism is not a church. Presbyterians are Calvinists or Cal more, more Calvinistic theology, but it's called Reformed theology. Um, but you have these Protestant churches now established. Some are established as nation churches. That's the Anglican Church is the Church of England, and it, it was a Protestant church, and it was a, the Church of England, right? Um, and so, but you have Protestant churches still exercising power through the state, right? The idea of separation of church and state that the Anabaptists put forth in the Schlethium Confession, that's an idea, but it hasn't taken root yet. And so Protestant churches are still persecuting Christians. And you see this in the 17th century in the seeker movement. Uh, let me jump over there, make sure that I don't have a ton of research on this, but I thought it was interesting. Um, let's see where I have this info. Uh, where do I have this info? <laughs> yeah, here we go. Um, so there was this movement in the... It started kind of in the 1620s with the preaching of three brothers, Walter Thomas and Bartholomew Legate. It was called the Legatean Arians this movement, or it, was, or it was called the Seekers. And so the Seekers really, they were kind of an anti, 
Remember I said I went to that church, it was church for non-church people? These guys were church for non-church people. They were like, we don't like the organized church, right? Again, you got the Protestant Reformation and Reformed theology going on, and you have the Renaissance going on, and you have the door opening, but the sword is still in the church even though it's now Protestant. And so these guys and the seeker movement is like, you know, the organized church is still kind of messed up. Yeah, we had the Protestant Reformation and yeah, the Renaissance is going on and there's all these new ideas and there's a new freedom, but the church isn't experiencing that freedom. And what you really see, unfortunately, is that the church is always behind the curve when it comes to freedom, socially. When it comes to social justice issues, slavery, you know, granted, a lot of slavery, anti-slavery movements were led by Christians, but they were fighting, uh, often fighting a majority of Christians that weren't for that. But you often see the church is behind the curve when it comes to social change. And that's just, I, I could sit and go through even modern history where that's just true. Women's rights, interracial marriage. The LGBTQ issue, the church is always behind the social curve of social progression, unfortunately. And this is true when it comes to getting the sword out of the church. Like secular culture is opening up and you have things flourishing, <clears throat> but the church is really slow to, to change. It's behind these movements. It's not ahead of them. You know... Even though Luther, why? Because, I don't know, it just has to, because universal orthodoxy. We have to get our truth right. And it's hard to change. Why? why? Because this is not just truth about how trees grow or chemical processes. This is truth about whether you go to heaven or hell when you die. And so the church often is slow to, to change its views because there's a fear about, well, if we get it wrong, then there's big consequences, right? We're talking about eternity, our eternal destination. And that's a different discussion. I have a different view on that. I'm a universalist, but for me, the pressure's off. But anyway, you have this lag always in the church. It's behind the movements of culture. And so you also have the idea of separation of church and state and the Protestant Reformation. It's not happening that fast. And so you still have Protestant churches persecuting Christians. And you see this with the seeker movement in the 1620s. They were like, we're done with organized church. It's too corrupt. They, what they really tried to do is, hey, let's get back to Revelation, right? There's, there's been this long march of reason in the church it's, that's dominated theology and thinking. Even though you could say the average person in the Middle Ages maybe wasn't that intellectual, theologians, this, they're driven by reason. From Augustine was a philo Greek philosopher, right? Greek philosophy has influenced theology, which has influenced church even though the average person couldn't read and write during the Middle Ages, even though and they may not have been that intellectual in our view, intellectualism has driven the church. Reason has driven theology. Orthodoxy is right thinking. But you have the seekers going, what, maybe orthosiasi, right relationship is the center. We want to get back to seeking God directly, revelation and guess what? Out of the Seekers came the Quakers. I talked about the Quakers kind of being influenced by the Anabaptists. The main movements out of the Anabaptists were the Mennonites, the um, Hutterites, and the Amish. But these groups influenced the Quakers. But the Seekers were really kind of the group that, from which the Quakers came, right? So this is like the Quakers were persecuted. 
um, <clears throat> by Protestant churches. And like you really have that the main some of the main and well documented persecution was in the sixteen sixties in the American colonies, right? And guess who persecuted the Quakers the most? The Puritans. And guess who the Puritans came from? John Calvin and Reformed theology. They were influenced. They were they were proponents of Reformed theology, right? They were persecuted by the Anglican Church in England. The Puritans were. <clears throat> they wanted to purify the church. They were reformers. They fled to the to um, the United States to, to the Americas. Sorry, it wasn't the United States at the time. <laughs> they fled to the these new fledgling colonies for religious freedom. And then guess what? The Quakers did the same because they were being persecuted too. But when they got to the Americas, when the Quakers got there, the Puritans were already well established. They had charters from kings, and the Puritans. The Puritans banned the Quakers from their colonies. Let me tell you something. These colonies were just, you know, this is a wilderness here at the time. There's, there's Indians, of course, already established. But, like, you're trying to establish, um, you know, European colonies and, and their style of culture. It's wild here. If you were banished from these colonies, what you, you were banished to wilderness literally wilderness and there's you know you might be killed by indians wolves bears right to be banished was a pretty severe um actually in 1656 there were english missionaries one was named mary fisher one was ann austin they began preaching in boston in 1656 they were called heretics by the puritans like their main idea like the i really like this about the quakers they they um their main focus is obedience to the inner light. They call like they believe the Holy Spirit is in you to guide you, and they're trying to seek the Holy Spirit. Well, this idea to reform theologians in um, the Americas was absurd. It was heretical. They were they were imprisoned for five weeks, then they were banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Their books were burned, their property was taken away, and then they were deported. They were told they they were I guess I don't know if they were deported back to England, but then you had more Quakers coming. And in 1660, Mary, the Quaker Mary Dreyer was hanged near Boston for defying the Puritan law banning Quakers from the colony. She was executed with four other Quakers. It was known as the Boston, they were known as the Boston Martyrs. Puritans were like, hey, we don't like being persecuted, Church of England. It's not fair. We're going to flee to America's the Americas for religious freedom. Quakers come over to these Puritan colonies that were founded for the sake of religious freedom and the Puritans are like, we don't like you, we're going to kill you. You're going to get hanged, we're going to hang and you guys, the, the Boston martyrs happen from, from a group of people who were fleeing England for religious freedom and they turn around and kill some other Christians because they're Quakers because they believe in following the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so my point is the sword what did I say last time? Some things change, some things don't. Even though things are progressing, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, Reformed theology reforms some things, but not others. Right? What do you think? I mean, people are, are craving freedom. Science is exploding. The arts. And Christians are like, hey, we want freedom too. And some Christians get it. Protestants, and then, but they won't give it. Quakers. Let's kill those Quakers. 
wait a minute, didn't, weren't you just being persecuted? Yeah. Well, how did you like it? Didn't like it. What are you going to do? We're going to persecute people that, what, they, they, they just can't get rid of that darn sword, right? Like humanism, it's just, this is just the fact. As humanism and reason are taking hold in the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, fundamentalism is taking hold in the church. There's a reaction against humanism, against freedom, right? I would say, you know, the good side of humanism is, hey, let's explore. Let's, let's explore our creativity, our God-given creativity. Let's have the freedom to choose God or not. Like, that's good. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where, we, where God says, submit or die. We can talk about hell. That's a whole different discussion. But we could say at least in this life, God gives us freedom to choose. That's like freedom is the, is the centrality of how God created us to live. God created us to choose. That's why the tree was in the garden with Adam and Eve, the, the knowledge of the good and evil, right? God, whether there was a literal tree, literal story, I, I don't know. But what we do know from that story is God said, look, I'm creating you guys with the freedom to choose me or not. I won't force you. Well, the whole impetus of the Middle Ages is we will force you. Not only will do you, do you have to be Christian, but you have to be the right kind of Christian. And guess what? If you're not, we have a sword in our hand. We've got the state in our pocket and we'll kill you. And we do. That's the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is you got to be Christian and you got to be the right kind of Christian. The sword. And the sword says so. <laughs> but the Bible is... God created us with freedom to choose God or not. And right in the beginning, even though Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, God says, here's a tree, and it represents the freedom for you to choose. For you to choose me or to not choose me. And so humanism on, in its good, on the good side is freedom. To choose, freedom to explore, freedom to discover there's no church going, you can't do this and you can't think that and you can't draw this and you can't paint that and you can't say the sun is at the center and whatever. That's not the spirit of God. The spirit of God, like, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Like, Jesus came to set us free, right? Free from oppressive systems. Free from the harlot on the beast, right? Free from this human system that's set up by the kingdom of darkness. Freedom is the essence of all that God desires for us. And so the good part of humanism is freedom, right? To explore, freedom to choose. Fundamentalism is a reaction against that. So even though the Renaissance and Enlightenment happen, the church is like really slow behind it as far as, I would say, cultural freedom, as far as social freedom. Like there's a lot of freedom now in the church to explore theology, to branch out if you want. Although again, right, they're killing Anabaptists, they're drowning them. Oh, you're a rebaptizer? We'll baptize you. Let's, here's some water. Oh, we baptized you a little too long. Sorry. No, I mean, like for, it's just... Even though the Protestant Reformation happens in Reformed theology, right? right? We're reforming, we're trying to reform orthodoxy, we're trying to get our orthodoxy better. 
But the part that they don't seem to get better is the idea of universal orthodoxy, of the idea that we have to get our truth right. And if you don't get your truth right, you can't be with us because you're not the right kind of Christian. That doesn't seem to get reformed. And I don't think it still has been reformed, right? Church on every block. I mean, this is the Western experience. I don't know other, you know, there's Christianity in other parts of the world, but like in Western, in the Western world, there's a church, there's a, there's a different flavor of church on every corner of this street. Why? Why? Because each one thinks they have their orthodoxy right, because that's still the center. What hasn't been reformed is theology. Reformed theology didn't reform theology. Didn't reform the core idea that theology is the center. Because it's not the center. Reformed theology still thinks theology is the center. What? Orthodoxy is the center instead of orthocac. Right? There's orthodoxy, there's orthopraxy, there's orthosynesthema, and there's orthocac. And orthocac should lead the other three. But starting with the First Council of Nicaea, through the patristic period, orthodoxy, right? Thinking, theology becomes center, and that's never been reformed. And so you have culture reforming. Like the Protestant Reformation opened the door. Secular culture gets created. Humanism comes back in. It's a rediscovery of humanism. It's a rediscovery of, of ancient Greek philosophy and ancient Greek culture. And this, like, it breeds in this explosion, this new freedom. Secular culture is we're free. But religious culture is we're not free. You can't believe that. You're a Quaker, you're dead. Wait a minute, didn't you just, Mr. Puritan, didn't you just escape religious persecution? Yep, love it. How you like that freedom? Nobody's trying to kill you, put you in prison. How you like it? I really like it. So why did you put those Quakers in prison and kill those Quakers? Well, they didn't think right. Aren't you, uh, don't you believe in reformed theology? Yeah, yeah, we've reformed theology. Hmm, did you? Hmm. But your theology still leads you to kill other Christians, right? I mean, it's like, what? What is going on? In my perspective, theology is yet to be reformed. Because theology, theos means God. Theology is like the organization of how we think about God. How we think about God still needs reform. I think the Quakers were right. We need to get back to orthocacy. We're still struggling on that path. And fundamentalism is a reaction against the freedom. The freedom to choose God. Like, we're talking about church culture and church history and how all those, those two combine and how the church has formed throughout the centuries. The biggest thing that the church has adopted is a lack of freedom, right? I mean, I think about Romans chapter 14, I just think about lots of scriptures in the Bible that talk about how mature Christians should bear with... Romans 14 says, Now mature Christians should bear with those who are weak, but not for passing judgment on disputable matters. And the whole chapter talks about, like, look, don't be arguing over differences of views. One man thinks one day is holy, another man thinks every day is holy, another man thinks they can eat meat, sacrifice to idols, another won't. And Paul's just like, there's liberty, there's freedom. In Christ, there's freedom. Like, some came to set us free. There's freedom to pursue God. 
it doesn't mean we pursue our own God and we make God what we want, but it does mean we have the freedom to discover a God who's vastly, infinitely more than we could comprehend. And so if we set up this church in a way that says we have to comprehend and, and we have to all comprehend the same way and see God the same way, and if you don't see God the same way, you're a heretic. But wait a minute, who, whose view of God is right? Is there not freedom for us all to be journeying in our view of God together, not isolating and separating? Let me jump to some scriptures real quick. Uh, we've got a little bit of time. I think I've done pretty much what I wanted to do explaining this season where the secular, uh, the secular season of culture through the Renaissance and Enlightenment, but how the church just doesn't quite follow. It's just slow and behind the curve. I got a lot of scriptures. Let me see. I, I, a couple of podcasts ago, I delved into 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and 2. But let's start with, I wanted to pick up back, back up with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Remember Paul's talking to people who are divisive, right? And they're dividing over who they follow. One follows Caiaphas, one follows Paul, one's a disciple of Apollos. And some rare apostles are disciples of Jesus. And Paul's like, what, where's all this division coming from? Right? This isn't right. We should be unified. So he's continuing on with this theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but only as fleshly, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to consume it. But even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like ordinary people? For when one person says, I'm with Paul, another, I'm with Apollos, are you not ordinary people? What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. He's the thing. Now the one who plants and the one who waters. Um, wait a minute. Uh, now the one who plants Oh, sorry. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So like, he's like, you're still fleshly. Why? Because you're dividing. You're dividing over human leaders. Who's got the best theology? Are you a Calvinist? Are you a Lutheran? Are you a Methodist? Are you a Baptist? Are you Anabaptist? Are you a Quaker? Uh, you know what? I've dedicated my life... My Christian journey, my spiritual journey has been, you know what I like that about the Quakers? I like that about the Methodists. I like that about Calvinism. I like that about Lutheranism. I like that about Catholicism. I like that about contemplation. Sort, sifting through, sorting out the good and the bad. There's good in every one of them, right? I'm not just a contemplative. I'm also a Baptist, a Methodist evangelical I have I have all these parts to me because I'm a Christian first I'm a follower of Jesus he's saying when you divide you're fleshly when there's jealousy and strife when there's division when there, when what there's no greater division than I'm going to kill you because <clears throat> you're the wrong kind of Christian that's a sundering like no other you're dead 
I've sundered you from live the land of the living because you didn't think right. And what my Christian tribe's right. And still today we, we operate in that spirit of jealousy and strife. It's fleshly. That means we're still drinking milk. It means we're not spiritual. Remember the Quakers, the inner divine light? Well, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spiritual presence with us that leads us spiritually. Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord uh, of God to teach him? But we have the mind of Christ. We, we speak spiritual truths through spiritual words. You know, he's like, there's the spiritual aspect. Babies need milk. They're fleshly. Spiritual people know how to abide difference where they're not dividing. And Paul's like, look, God gives the growth. It doesn't matter who plants or who waters. It doesn't matter if Calvin planted and Luther waters. It doesn't matter if the Anabaptists planted and the Baptist water. It doesn't matter the Quakers, what the Quakers plant. Like, we're all planters and we're all ones who water. But God gives the growth. It's the Holy Spirit, orthosiasi. We're all God's fellow workers. And what? We receive our reward from God according to our own labor. We all have a different work. And so we all have a different gift, multiplicity, right? We have a different gift. We have a different work. And we may have a different revelation of truth that fits that work. We each do our own thing. We're all parts of one body. We, you know, and the hand doesn't say to the foot, I don't need you. Like, when we can let each other be a part and have a part and hold that intention of the whole and don't demand a uniformity of parts, then it works. You got people planting and people watering. You got a variety of seeds. Like, look at the world, the physical world. God created such a variety of plants and trees. Not everything's an oak, not everything's a mustard plant, <laughs> right? There's a variety. One person can be planting some Lutheran truths. Another person can be planting Calvinist truths, another contemplative truths, Catholic truths, evangelical truths. Like in your garden, you're just going to plant some basil and that's it. Maybe you should have some apples. Like what are you eating spiritually? You just got some oregano in your garden you're probably not going to survive you need corn you should have some carrots you should have some apple trees some peach trees you could have you know almond trees you could have potatoes onions i mean think about the feast of food when you take seeds from all different flavors of church and you have this great smorgasbord it's like a church potluck where there's all more food and variety of food than you've ever seen in your life. That's like the idea of the church and freedom in the church to allow a lot of different views. And for mature people to be like, yeah, we got space. There's space for all of us here. That's a church. That's a smorgasbord of spiritual food. Right? But when everybody's going, no, it's just got to be meat and potatoes. And if you bring apple cobbler, we're going to kill you. (laughs) And if you bring some kind of crazy vegetable medley or green bean casserole with the little crunchy top, it's getting to be Thanksgiving time. Some good food's coming. Gravy and 
Like, we want a smorgasbord spiritually. But that's not the flavor of the church. Like, Reformed theology? Reformed theology led to Puritans killing Quakers. Apparently, it didn't reform enough. Humanism and, you know, Renaissance humanism is a reaction against the church that said, you can't think that, and you can't draw that, and you can't write that. But the church still hasn't figured out that it's just as oppressive as it's ever been. Why? Because Catholics can't get along with Protestants, and Lutherans can't get along with Calvins, Calvin, with Presbyterians, and here we are. Still, really, the same kind of church as the Middle Ages. It's just that we no longer control the state to kill people, or do we? How many LGBTQ people you think commit suicide every year? Because they're ostracized by parents who believe that it's an it's abhorrent because their faith teaches them that their children are abominations. Like we can't literally pick up a gun and shoot somebody because they don't believe like we do. But we can oppress people. We can pe- keep people politically inferior. We can keep women from voting. We can keep blacks from voting. This has been still the history of the modern era and the church in the modern era. It's still been oppressive. It's just that the means of oppression have changed. And so we've had to get more creative in our control. It's not, it's not, it's not fantasy. The church has still tried to oppress people that don't think right Whatever, whatever the church at different times has said, this is right and that's not right. Interracial marriage, women's, women's rights, women can't be over a man, women can't teach in churches. The church, even though it no longer can wield the sword of state, has still wielded the, whatever sword it could find, whatever weapon it could hold and brandish. It, could, it has still tried to pick up whatever weapon it could to enforce its orthodoxy and thinking on culture and society. And today, fundamentalism, this is fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is still this idea that we pine for those good old days when the church could really keep society pure from all this evil. When the church could just kill people. Wasn't it wasn't it such a great time when the church could kill people and they didn't think right? There wasn't a great population of lesbians during the Middle Ages. Man, that was good. Yeah, because you, if you were one, you were either killed or you kept your mouth shut. <laughs> and you didn't practice it. <laughs> so it wasn't the freedom, right? With freedom comes responsibility. But with freedom comes the opportunity to reject God. But that's exactly how God sets up the world. The kingdom of Satan controls and doesn't give you the freedom. God gives you the freedom. Yes, there are consequences. To the, there are consequences when you don't choose what's truly freeing. Of course, but the idea that we shouldn't have that freedom and if we if we don't choose right we're dead oppression oppression has been oppression is the mode modus operatus of the church still today right it's just the forms of oppression have changed from the middle ages because of humanism in secular society, now churches can't take people out 
physically, but they can kick people out and they can ostracize and they can excommunicate and they can they can still use their political majority to oppress and to influence laws to keep people from marrying right to keep people from voting this is still the history of the church oppression the sword the influence of the wrong kingdom fundamentalism is oh man those good old days before secular society when the church reigned supreme and everybody was christian wasn't that great you know what i'd like to take some some evangelicals back to the middle ages and see if their theology flies and see if they don't end up on a wood pile burned at the stake you think that was better You think it was so pure. It was pure, but it was pure by pain of death. That wasn't good. What's good is we have the freedom to choose. And guess what? We draw people through freedom by freedom and the freedom of love. God woos us as a lover. Satan controls and says, if you don't toe the line, you're dead. And the church still today has conflated these two kingdoms and says, if you don't toe the line, you're dead will oppress you one way or the other. However we can, will oppress you. And God's like, I don't oppress people. You don't oppress people to freedom. You love people to freedom. You present freedom. You offer freedom. You teach them how to walk in freedom. You disciple. You show the way. You lead the way by your example, by living godly lives. And what's it mean to live a godly life? Love. Love people well sacrifice give everything to show the example the example of christ on the cross is i would rather die than oppress you i want to show you the way of freedom i want to get the sword out of everything about human society i want to get rid of this empire mentality in government and church Woo. <laughs> Man, humanism isn't all bad. Fundamentalism isn't really that good. It's just the same old, same old regurgitated going, oh, we don't like how people have a freedom not to choose God. We don't like that. Man, I wish wish we could just oppress people and and force people. (laughs) No, I mean, I know that's not what people think. Christians aren't sitting around thinking, oh yeah, we should oppress people, but that's what we're doing. It's good that we have freedom. God wants us to have the freedom to choose. And so what we have to figure out is how do we operate in freedom when it comes to drawing people to God instead of just oppressing them. And if you don't think right, you can't be in my church. What would it look like for a church to be inclusive and be like, okay, you're gay, you're an atheist, you're a weird mystical Christian, but let's get together. You can be in my church. What? An atheist? And you're, yeah, why not? You got a church function? You got a, you're hanging out at a campfire? Invite an atheist. You got church services? What's the harm in LGBTQ people being there? Well, well doesn't, the, doesn't the Bible say? Maybe. Doesn't the Bible also say love people well? Show them by your good deeds, your humility, your graciousness, your... What are the fruits of the Spirit? Oppression, forcing people 
<laughs> right? Theology. <laughs> Ortho- no, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruits of God in us are we're really loving and kind and gentle and gracious. And we're happy. We just love people. We just want to be around people. It doesn't matter who you are, what you believe, how you think, your lifestyle, your sexual orientation. doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, guys. I was pretty good. Uh, we may wrap it up next week. I think so. But this week we talked about Renaissance Enlightenment, Reformed Theology, Humanism, and fundamentalism. I hope all that kind of continues to help you understand where the church is headed into the modern era, which is our era, right? Love you guys. This has been a Construction Monk podcast. I'm your host, Jay Randall Ori. You can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com or Google Jay Randall Ori. Love you guys. Bye.